This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Mark Moshe Bain, a partner at Ropes and Gray and the president of the Orthodox Union, the OU. How are you? I'm, thank God, wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. And I know that you're a person who's been involved in many different aspects of the broader Jewish community, uh, community activism, and certainly now in an extremely critical and consuming role as the lay leader uh, of the Orthodox Union. And we'll get to all of that, but take us back a little bit, a few years at least, and uh, tell us where you grew up and kind of what your early upbringing was like. I grew up in, um, in Montreal, in Canada, and uh, in a modern Orthodox family. I went to a school called Hebrew Academy in Montreal, which is still vibrant and uh, successful. I was a very active B'nai Kiva kid. I used to go to B'nai Kiva every week. I went to Camo Shabbat in Ontario for a number of summers, and I got a lot out of it. It was a very important part of my uh, experience. It's certainly those days and those experiences lent themselves dramatically to my connection to Zionism and to Israel, which still play a very important role in my life. Um, at the age of 14, I decided with a group of other classmates of mine to go to a camp in Cleveland on the campus of Tel Yeshiva. Wow. So that was a big, uh, a big shift from, from the more modern Orthodox upbringing. Well, sort of. For some reason, I have no idea why, I was like the first and maybe the only boy in Hebrew County, Montreal, to start wearing his tzitzis out when I was 12. I don't know why. I don't know. Uh, we also started a number of learning programs in, in the Hebrew Academy that didn't exist until then. So we were into religion in a serious way. Uh, we went to that camp. Uh, we had a great time. I came back, and, and then shortly thereafter, I accelerated. I had intended to go away from home for high school for yeshiva. And I accelerated that by a year and actually spent uh, the next three years of high school in Baltimore, in Israel, uh, which was fascinating. Um, very, very interesting experience. Made a lot of friends, developed a much different social context. After high school, I went to Israel for a year. I went to Gush Etzion, Alon Shvut, which was much more back to where I had, had been before. And, um, Made a lot of friends there as well. I uh, was introduced to a, a number of different uh, pieces of the puzzle. I will tell you, though, one, one interesting experience I had when I arrived there. Um, what, one of the anticipations I had had was that in the three years I was in Baltimore, I was confronting such a different orientation than I had experienced as a child. And I thought, well, that must be the, the more right-wing narrow-mindedness um, and, and closed-mindedness, and I'm going to go to Gush, which has a reputation as a very expansive place, and I'll be able to see a broad world view. And one of my greatest disappointments of the year, I had many, many upsides that I, I take with me, but my greatest disappointment was I found them to be as narrow-minded in their approach and as dismissive as everybody else, as the folks in Baltimore had been dismissive of others. And one of my frustrations is through the many, many communities that I have journeyed over the subsequent 30, 40 years, I have found that to be a pretty consistent characteristic. 
which I find very troubling and very frustrating and very damaging for the Jewish community. Not to say that people should not find their own, but I think they need to appreciate and understand other approaches and be able to embrace them as well, at least for others. It's the, old, the old adage that anyone to my left is a heretic and anyone to my right is an extremist. Could be, yeah. <laughs> now, it's, what's interesting, and I, I hear echoes of, you know, very strongly, I guess, from your early story is that you seemed to have this propensity from a very young age to kind of either push the envelope or to, to try different types of experiences, um, foreign experiences, to put yourself into environments that may have been unfamiliar to you, going from this more, again, kind of modern Orthodox family to this camp in, in Cleveland, to this yeshiva in Baltimore, and then to this, back to this kind of more Zionist type of environment in Israel, at least. Was, was that something that your parents fostered? Was, is that just kind of an innate character trait that you, you like to dance in uh, different camps, so to speak? Well, there, there's a dimension of different camps. There's also a dimension of adventurism and willingness to be uncomfortable, which I think many people have discovered that growth, if anything, requires a tolerance of discomfort. I often tell younger people that if you find yourself very comfortable, it means you're not growing. You need to have the courage and the confidence to be putting yourself in roles and positions and in places that are not your comfort zone and try to escape the natural tendency to be comfortable and be with people that you know and experiences you've already done. I even find that at work where um, when you start, I'm practicing law now for over 30, almost 35 years, that you have a tendency to try to do the things you already know how to do well. And if you spend too much time in looking at your practice that way, you're never going to become very successful. A successful person is someone who keeps on trying new things and expanding their capacity. So it's true on a career basis. It's true on a religious basis. It's true on a personality basis. So that, that was a, a tendency I had pretty young. I did a lot of very strange things <laughs> at different points from, from my age. I remember in uh, 1973, I was 13 years old and the um, Yom Kippur War broke out and it was a a very traumatic period for world Jewry, and certainly in my home, it was a very tense and real experience. And during that period, I did a number of things that when I look back and say to myself, boy, 13-year-old, I, for example, I set up a table in front of the local federation during Sukkot with a little bit esrog, soliciting donations for the IDF. Wow. And then I spent the next couple of days going around with the federation women, collecting pledges that were made. Uh, all kinds of weird stuff. Then I set up on the, um, the night of Hoshana Rabbah, which is the sixth night of Sukkos, an all-night learning program in my school, which was also an innovative, out-of-the-box type thing. So I, I was doing weird things, I guess. That's, uh, if you want to say what led me to that, I guess I'm weird. So I do weird things. <laughs> I still do that today. As long as you know it. Then. <laughs> it's, uh, so yeah, it's really active. I don't know it, I, I, I embrace it. There we go. I love it. Yeah, you see, you had this very activist spirit early on. I'm curious, with all the different environments that you were in, from a scholastic perspective, how did you sort of determine, or when did you determine, kind of an approach that was most comfortable or resonant for you, I guess, intellectually? Did you find yourself synthesizing different approaches? Did you end up ultimately gravitating towards one or the other of the different kind of approaches to which you had been exposed? Well, I, I, I think that we tend to vary our approaches through life. I don't think I was 
uh, stagnant at any point to say, okay, this is my approach for the next 50 years. Um, I'm constantly trying to explore new thoughts, new avenues. You know, what, what I try to do generally is experiment and uh, proceed further. Let me, let me tell you a, um, an incident that a group of us did when we were 20 in Yeshiva. I, I just, after Gush, I went back to Nehru Israel and was there for many years. Thereafter, I got smicha when I was there. I became a very close student of, of Jakob Weinberg, who was then not yet the Rosh Hashidi, came to Rosh Hashidi after Ruderman passed away, after I had left, but he was my Rebbe. And we had a group of guys who were pretty incredible, and they are all incredible today. And one of the, one of the exercises, and we did a lot of weird things, um, a lot of weird things in, in all kinds of philosophical ways. One of the things we did was we decided that it's very difficult for a person to know how much of their worldview is tainted by external influences that you really don't want to embrace. So what we did was we decided we are going to create a clean slate and assume nothing and start from scratch <laughs> with no belief premises or assumptions with one condition. And the condition was that no matter what we concluded at the end of our analysis, we were going to re remain observant for the rest of our lives. And the reason we did that was we didn't want our lifestyle to influence our philosophical view. And if you tie them together, then hey, if I want to eat you know, a cheeseburger, I may come out in a certain way in my philosophical view. And if I like chillant, I may come out with a different view. So we wanted to just totally separate the two, and we spent the next year putting together blocks of Jewish philosophy, what we found embracing and what we found offensive, and tried to create for ourselves a platform um, of Jewish thought. So that was like the kinds of stuff that we, we would do. We, we did another weekend um, where a group of us, we were eight fellows, who thought we were going to change the world. We thought we were going to we change world Jewry. And we decided we were 20 at the time, or at least I was 20, a couple of guys were older, a couple of guys were younger. Um, one of the fellows had a farm. His parents <laughs> were, 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 were co-owners of a farm in Delaware. And we said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go away for the weekend and plan out the future of world Jewry. That was what we were going to do. The cabal. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to figure it out. So we went away, and we needed to get two more fellows to join us because we wanted to have a minion on Shabbos. We didn't want to go without a minion. So we asked two fellows who were not part of the group, but they weren't cynical, and they weren't uh, difficult. So we, joined, they asked, we asked them to join. They were delighted. It was a fun group of guys, and, and we went away for the weekend. And it was a wonderful time. We had a great time, but we accomplished nothing. It was a total <laughs> bust. It was we, nothing. We had, except for fun, we did nothing. And we came back, and I, I sat down to analyze why that weekend was a failure. And I came up with a series of principles, which we called the Delaware Principles. <laughs> and, and the Delaware Principles became a roadmap for community involvement. And of the Delaware Principles, many have fallen by the wayside since then. This is in 1980. Uh, most of them have fallen by the wayside, but two I have adopted and incorporated into most things that I do on a community basis. One of them was, I felt the reason it wasn't as successful as it should have been were the two guys that we added. The two guys that we added did nothing wrong, did nothing that was um, distracting, did nothing that was negative. They were fine. But I discovered then that if when you want to create a momentum, everyone has to be part of the momentum. And people who are not part of the momentum necessarily take away from the momentum. And I learned that lesson in, in Delaware. If you had only, sacri only sacrificed the minion, you could have saved world jury. You know? yeah, that's right. <laughs> or thought that we could. I don't know if it's worse. <laughs>
the second principle, which in some ways is much more profound, at least to us at the time, was I felt the primary reason we were not successful was we were eight equals. And being eight equals, each one of us was very reluctant to take charge and appear like we were the bossy one. Because who am I? I don't, I don't want to appear like I'm pushy. So all of us just, we would, we would hand things off back and forth. And I discovered then, and I've confirmed it on many, many occasions thereafter, you always need someone in charge. Even if the person in charge is chosen arbitrarily. It's not that they're, they're the strongest person, the smartest person. It's just somebody has to be in charge. And that was the second lesson that I learned in Delaware that uh, I have found to be very, very valuable. Wow. That's kind of stuff that I did uh, in my early years. I'm just surprised. So none of the Delaware principles involve traffic. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only Delaware principle I know. It's, it's the place that keeps me from getting to where I want to go in New Jersey or home if I'm going up and down the, the turnpike. So you went from there. It sounds like at some point, obviously, you matriculated into the professional world into law. Um, did, you, did you entertain becoming a rabbi or becoming a professional Jew? You did get ordination, you said. So what triggered your, your switching gears or just you know, transitioning out of that world into the professional world? So it was, it was interesting because I certainly entertained the idea of becoming a rabbi. And I had a very interesting incident. Um, in my last year in Baltimore, I was um, invited to a meeting with one of the faculty who said to me, you know, we're going over the different students, and particularly those who are matriculating and leaving yeshiva, and we know you're leaving at the end of the year to go to law school next year, and we were thinking that it's a mistake. You shouldn't go to law school, you should stay here, and then eventually you should become a rabbi. I was at the time, and I still am, very close with an uh, extraordinary rabbi, uh, his name is Rabbi Michal Taworski in Milwaukee. Sure. And I said, you know, you'll learn here for a few years, get married eventually, you'll be in Kolel, and you'll go to Milwaukee, you'll do an internship with Rabbi Tversky for a few years, and you'll go out and become a rabbi. And um, I told them, and this was a really the core of my thinking at the time, I said, you know, I've been here many, many years, and, and the yeshiva has taught me many, many things. And one of the things that you taught me is there are two kinds of rabbis. And you taught me there's some kinds of rabbis that you taught me to respect, and some types of rabbis you taught me not to respect. You know, when you tell me to become a rabbi, it's to become the kind of rabbi you taught me not to respect. <laughs> no one would expect me to answer a halakha question. No one would expect me to give a deep Talmudic shir. That wasn't why they wanted to become a rabbi. So you told me there are two types of lay people. The types of lay people you taught me to respect and those you taught me not to respect. I think I could become a lay person that you would want me to respect. So I'd rather be a lay person I can respect than a rabbi I can't respect. Good reason. We, we were part of a group, as I mentioned, these guys, and we were all very committed to the community. But what we realized early on was that you don't do what you think you're going to enjoy doing or the role you want to be viewed in, but rather you have to determine what role you could play will most maximize your strengths and will satisfy the needs of the community. So myself and one of the other fellows, we went to law school deliberately in order to be involved in the community. That was the premise of our, um, our law school endeavor. Now, in fact, recently when I was contemplating whether or not I should take this position at the Orthodox Union, you know, one of the consequences is a severe diminution in my practice. Sure. And um, I was talking to my wife about it, but you know, it's, I'm not close to retirement, I have another eight, 10 years, and it's too early to stop working and, and, and doing the community things. And, and my wife, very wisely, as everything she says is very wise, said, I don't understand. When we got married, you said you were going to law school because you thought that was a 
close to the community. Now right. you're not going to do for the community because of your law practice. That doesn't seem very consistent. So I, I immediately recognized that she was 100% right and, and pursued the position. She held you to it. So where did you go to law school and, and what did you do right afterwards? What, did you, what area did you get into? So I went, I went to NYU, uh, which was a, a real uh, culture shock. I'll bet. <laughs> I remember in, in May, I was still in Yeshiva, and I came to the Greenwich Village to find a place to live. And I came back that night, and the guys in the base medrash in the Yeshiva asked me, how was it? And I told them it was amazing. I was offered more kinds of drugs walking through Washington Square Park than I knew existed. That was my uh, experience. I think that Washington Square Park is a lot more cleaned up now than it was in 1982, but that was the uh, environment <laughs> then. Um, I had a great time in law school. Uh, first year law school was tough, but the second and third year were fabulous. I, uh, I gave many, many classes in, in Talmud and other religious areas. I spent uh, enormous amounts of time trading commodities, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, and I got married between the second and third year of law school. And so uh, we, law school was a lot of fun. Um, I had originally intended to go into business. That was my plan, that I was going to go to law school, practice law for two, three years, and then go into business. And I never made it out of uh, of the law firm world. Have you stayed in, in the same firms or same one or two firms? Or? I've been, this is my third firm. I was in my first firm for four years. Then I went to the second firm for 17 years. And then 13 years ago, I came here. Uh, and, you're, and what's your specialty? I'm the head of the corporate restructuring group at Ropes and Gray. Wonderful. So what is, if your experience has been in the legal world, have you found it to be an avenue to be able to influence people or impact the community? Or do you really find that those are kind of two separate things where you have your career, you make your living, and then in your quote unquote spare time, you go in and engage in community activism? Well, I think it really depends on the individual. There are people who love the law and they embrace it and they enjoy it. And, and many of them use their legal practice and their legal acumen to do incredible things for the Jewish community. I don't like law that, all that much. <laughs> You're I just a masochist. But <laughs> I get a kick out of it. I enjoy my job to the extent that I, I have to work, but I, I'd much rather be involved in other endeavors. So I don't do legal work as part of my community activism, I, but I do find that the legal practice has been an incredible platform from which to be involved in different community organizations. There are skills that I've developed through my practice that have been invaluable in community work. And then generally the relationships that you build and the behaviors that you learn are part of corporate America at the higher echelons are very valuable to community activism. I would imagine you encountered many, many fellow members of the tribe at all of these uh, different firms where you've been, uh, especially as you've ascended in the ranks. What has that been like and how has your more fervent approach to Judaism been embraced or, or not embraced? Well, I have never had a problem um, with being an observant Jew in large, big law um, it's never been a problem. I, I, I think both in terms of my peers in the firm as well as my clients have been extremely accommodating. I think it takes a lot of work on my part in order to assure that they don't suffer because of it, that they don't get any detriment in their representation and like, but it's doable if you are very conscientious. I remember in my first position, back when I was a second year associate, um, I would leave every day, at, on, every Friday at a couple hours before sundown. And there was a fellow who was a junior partner who was Jewish, and he was a traditional Jew, not Orthodox, but very traditional. And one Friday, he sees me leaving, and he comes over to me and says, you know, I'm really jealous because I see you, you leave no matter what on a Friday afternoon. And to me, my wife really would like me to come home Friday, and sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. 
And sometimes I have to struggle. Well, should I stay? Should I not go? I'm so jealous that you have the courage to leave every week. And I, and I told the fellow, I, I, I think you should leave every week if you can, but don't view my behavior as courageous. I think it's quite the contrary. So you're struggling with whether you should go home or not. If I don't go home, I won't ever be allowed home again afterwards. <laughs> not like I have a choice. In my community, if anything, if I would lose my job because I refuse to work on Saturday, I'd be a hero. It's not a, uh, a major sacrifice for me in, in the context of my life. And I, I have found that to be the case. Um, you know, Once you make a commitment and you're conscientious of accommodating everybody else's needs around you, I think you can get away with, with all of your interests in religion and observance that are necessary. Now, but it takes an accommodation. For example, until recently, as a senior partner in a, in a department, I would never, if I could, be unavailable on Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving and Easter, all the days that other people would be taken off. It could be a third-year associate. I'll do your work. It's a trade-off. I'm not available all these Jewish holidays and Saturdays. I need other people to cover me. I'm available to cover when it's not my holiday. And you have to be very clear that that's your willingness, and you're not taking anything for granted. And the same thing is true with many, many dimensions. Kosher food is also a, a significant issue, particularly as you get more senior and socializing is a, a more prominent part of what you're doing. But people are very, very understanding and accommodating as long as you're comfortable with who you are, which I think is the primary obstacle that most people have. It's not that other people are going to give them a hard time. It's that they're uncomfortable with themselves and who they are and, and their practices. Did you find the the ability to get involved in community life right away? I mean, b- law in general, and certainly big law, as you, as you put it, can be very consuming, especially at the beginning of one's career. So how early on were you able to begin branching out and, and getting involved in community activism? And what did you do to kind of get that ball rolling? Well, I, I was actually involved in community activism while I was still in law school. Okay. And I, uh, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, when I was in law school, I, I got there in August. And by October, it was clear that most of the Jewish girls in my class were dating non-Jewish, non-Jewish boys. I said, come on, why, there's so many Jewish boys. Why are they, you know? And I decided that probably the most effective thing I could introduce, I, I thought I had to do something, was do a Hanukkah dance. Hanukkah was coming down in a couple of weeks. Let me do a Hanukkah dance. And maybe all the kids will get together, all the Jewish kids, and, and they'll start dating each other. And uh, I didn't know, however, whether I could do a Hanukkah dance. Because, you know, as an Orthodox Jew, I wouldn't uh, dance with uh, anyone but my wife or even my wife in public. I don't know whether I should do it or not. I called up my, uh, my Rebbe and I asked him, could I set up a Hanukkah dance? And he said, uh, no, you can't. I said, so there should be a Hanukkah dance. He goes, of course, it's a great idea. I said, so let me get this straight. There should be a Hanukkah dance, but I can't do it. He goes, exactly. I said, why not? If it's worthwhile and it's important, he goes, because you can never tell a Jew to do something that when they later become observant, they'll say, why did you tell me to do that? That wasn't allowable. I said, okay. And uh, I did one of the um, first out-of-the-box things I I did in my community. I've worked and I've done many more radicals since then. But what I did was I um, thought about it. And I thought that I had an approach. My approach was the following. There was, and I think it's still the case in most law schools, that there are clubs, there are student clubs. And in order to have a student club, you need to have 40 students sign on, and you need a faculty advisor. 
Now, there were all kinds of clubs at NYU, but there was no Jewish club. The reason there was no Jewish club is because probably half the class was Jewish. <laughs> the Jewish club was the, was the class. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you couldn't have a Jewish club. So I went around and I got a bunch of signatures and I found an uh, elderly uh, Jewish professor to agree to be the faculty advisor. And I submitted to create a Jewish club. And one of the reasons I did that was because when you're an officially recognized club, you get a stipend, $10,000, to do club activities. And I submitted my papers and I got recognized as a, as a club. And one of the requirements was to create a set of bylaws, which I wrote. And um, I think that club still exists to today, probably in a different name. Um, but I suspect the bylaws are still there. Wow. Suspect also that no one ever read the bylaws. Because <laughs> they would think it was written by a madman because what the bylaws provide is that the organization had three segments. There was a, a education segment, a political activism segment, and a social event segment. And each segment would have a chairperson and then there would be a president of the organization. And then it says in the bylaws, and the president of the organization is not allowed to have anything to do with the social part of the organization. <laughs> and I went over to one of my friends in the class who was Jewish but not observant and said, listen, I got you $10,000. If he can do a Hanukkah dance, and there was a Hanukkah dance, and I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't allowed. <laughs> Did anyone meet that you know of as a result of that dance? A lot, a lot of people met. And, um, people became, and then they started coming to my classes, and it was a very a good dynamic and a lot of fun. I, I, uh, I learned a lot. And then, then when I left law school, um, right before, in the summer before law school, I was looking for the bar myself, and I very close friend of mine, actually the second fellow who left their Israel to go to law school. We started a, an organization uh, that became a national organization, still exists today, uh, called Kayama. Kayama was an organization, I, I had a problem. And my problem was that I had convinced my wife to marry me based on my presentation to her that I was going to do all these great stuff for the Jewish people. <laughs> and I wasn't doing very much. We were having a great time. It was third year law school. I was having a blast. And, and one day she says to me, you know, we've been married. For seven months, you haven't done anything for the Jewish people. <laughs> so I panicked because if your wife doesn't respect you, you got nothing. So I got, I got to do something. I spent the next three months trying to find a cause. And I read a couple of very interesting pieces, unconnected to each other, but I put together. One of them was an article that talked about divorce rates in America in 1985, it was. And uh, they had divorce rates for different constituencies within the community, and one of them was the Jewish community. And the Jewish community had a slightly lower divorce rate, but it was still pretty significant. And many, many Jews were getting divorced. And in a completely unrelated context, I came across a data point of how many Jewish couples, when, when they get divorced, obtain a Jewish divorce, called a right. get. Now, in Jewish law, if a couple gets divorced without a get, they're still married. And this article talked about the remarriage rates of different populations, and the remarriage rate of Jews was the highest of any community in America. So what was happening was that people were getting divorced, they weren't getting a Jewish divorce, Jewish couples, and then they get remarried to other people, and they were committing adultery in Jewish law, because they were still married to their first uh, spouse in Jewish law. So we started this project in the summer of 85 to encourage non-observant Jews to get a get when they get divorced. And we've done thousands and thousands, not as many as I had thought, that we do hundreds of thousands over the subsequent 20 years, but we've done, thank God, a, a fair number. And it was my first post-college, post-law school uh, endeavor. And I kept on working on it for a few years while I was in uh, my practice. After a couple of years, it became clear I didn't have enough time to run it myself, and we started a staff, and we raised some money, and um, that was my first endeavor. But what I, what I discovered during that period, um, during those 
few years when I started working was that there are a number of threshold questions that a person who wants to be an activist needs to grapple with. I'll just describe two of them, which I think are the core two questions. First question is, if you want to be an activist in the Jewish community and probably in any environment where you want to make change, the threshold question is, do you want to be anti-establishment or do you want to be part of the establishment? And there are completely different approaches, completely different styles, completely different philosophies. You have to decide which one is for you and who, what kind of person are you and where will you be more comfortable and what place to your strengths more. Now, I was prepared to be an anti-establishment. <laughs> frankly, I, I'm not that into the establishment. I, I tend to do things my own way. But I, I had a second problem. The second problem is that I discovered that community work is similar to business in the following regard. Let's say you're graduating from college, you're graduating from, a, from an MBA program, and you want to go to business and make a lot of money. That's your, your goal. You have a threshold question. Do you want to be an entrepreneur? Or do you want to be part of corporate America? And either one, if you're successful, you can make a lot of money. And either one, you can blow up and be a disaster. So how do you choose which one? The answer is you have to know yourself. Well, what are your strengths and weaknesses? What are your tolerance for risk? And all of those factors go into it. And that's how you choose which of the two. So to me, I was clearly an entrepreneur. I was doing my own thing. And for example, this, this organization that we started, I had intended to start a whole bunch of other organizations. But during that period, um, my first few years practicing law, I also, also discovered how business works, which I did not really appreciate beforehand. And what I learned was that if I invent this incredible widget, this incredible mousetrap, and it's the best mousetrap in the world, there's a second thing I need to do in order to be successful. And that is I've got to figure out how to distribute it and how to get the market to know about it. And if I have the greatest product in the world but no one knows about it, I'm not going to make any money. So there are two skills you have to have. One is product development, and number two is distribution. And what I was finding was I was spending all my time on distribution. We created this organization, and I was spending day and night going around speaking, raising money, going to communities, convince them to start embracing it. And I, I didn't want to be a distributor. I wanted to be a product developer. So um, what I decided at that point, basically in 1989, 1990, was to try to get involved in the OU, which had probably the best distribution system in Orthodox world, perhaps. And I figured, okay, that way I could do my product development and not have to be burdened with the distribution process. Interesting. That was my uh, transition to the OU from my entrepreneurial inclinations. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it does sound from your biography like you are kind of inherently an iconoclast, and yet you sort of consciously have constrained yourself to these sort of establishment structures in order to do what you want. So it seems like it's a very conscientious decision put yourself in those environments where you could be involved in, in that way. Well, you know, it, that's a, um, a tension that most Jews have, particularly Orthodox Jews have, that in one hand, we want to be part of a community. And to be part of the Orthodox community, there are expectations of behavior. There are ways you're supposed to dress and ways you're supposed to talk and things you're supposed to do. And it sort of is a um, deterioration in your individuality. But on the other hand, we want to be part of the community. But by the same token, we do have this inbred and need to be our own person and to be an individual. So how do you coalesce these two contradicting um, inclinations? And, and my suggestion to people is that it really doesn't have to be an inconsistency. All you have to do is find areas of individual expression that are not inconsistent with community goals. And there are all kinds of stuff like that. You don't have to spit in the face of the establishment in order to be an individual. 
So what I learned to do in my community work was to be accommodating to the core cultural needs of the establishment, and then on areas that frankly are usually much more important on a substantive basis, then I do my own thing. How do you feel about, you do see those that are taking the approach of kind of stepping outside to more of a critical degree and, and voicing criticism more vocally, more explicitly, but because I think they feel passionately about the particular cause or about a need for change, and, and they go about doing it in, in a sort of more oppositional way, is that something you look at disdainfully, or is that something that you have an empathetic sense towards? I'll answer that question by noting that there are two types of people who do that. There's a person who does that because they are angry. They're angry people, and their propensity is to be adversarial by nature, and they're adversarial in their community work, but they're adversarial in almost everything they do. And I find that very disturbing and very counterproductive. There are other people who are not at all angry or adversarial or or, uh, dismissive by nature, but they make a calculated decision. But there is an objective. There is a change that has to be made. And they analyze it very rationally. Am I more likely to make that change by doing it in a cooperative way or by being an outsider and attacking the system? And very often, it's the former and sometimes it's the latter. And a person who makes that calculated analysis and reaches on a rational basis that then there is a need the community has, the community need is more likely to be fulfilled if I take an outside adversarial position, I respect them enormously for that. I think it's usually a very uh, significant compromise and, and, and sacrifice on their own. Very often, it's putting themselves in an uncomfortable social position, and they're doing it for the right reason. I think there's almost nothing more beautiful than that. You've been now working uh, in one capacity or another in the OU as a lay leader for, I guess, if my math is right, uh, it sounds like about 18 years. No, 28 years. I'm sorry. So my math was wrong. 28 years. So obviously, I'm sure you've done many different things within that. Have there been sort of trends of, of the areas that you've been into? Any signature causes that you've really embraced? What's sort of been your trajectory within that and some of the things that you've worked on over that time? I've worked on a, a many, many things, both inside the OU and outside. Uh, the result of that is that I'm an expert in very few things. <laughs> and um, that was very conscientious. I, I, when I was in Yeshiva, there were two types of scholars. There were scholars who had a field of scholarship that they were going to become world-class in. You know, whether it's going to be in, in torts or in family law, whatever area it would be, they would be one of the world experts in that field. And then there were fellows who were equally scholarly, but they wanted a broad base of scholarship. And at the end of the day, they were not as knowledgeable in any field as those who were experts in those respective fields, but they had a broad view. When I was starting out back in my, my 20s in, in activism, I was noting that almost every activist I was meeting had their field. It was their area. There was you know, political action guys, and there were day school guys, and there were mikvah guys. Everybody had their thing, that that was their passion. I'm not a passionate guy by nature. I'm very <laughs> not an emotional guy by nature, except when it comes to chocolate cake, maybe. But besides for that, really not. I said, you know, what there aren't enough of are people who are just generalists. There, I spend a very, um, a lot of time trying to figure out how am I going to create the kind of breadth of familiarity with the Jewish community. So, for example, I spent four years as the chairman of NCSY, 
which is an outreach program. And I learned a lot about the outreach world. I spent six years involved in political action. And I learned how politics works and how lobbying works and how the Jewish community's issues are addressed from a political perspective. I spent uh, a number of years involved in community activism on a uh, synagogue basis, just trying to learn the different parts of the puzzle. So I've done a lot of different things, and the result of that is I know a, a lot of things on a very limited basis. I have, a, I have a tremendous appreciation for the breadth of the community, for the diversities within the community, and the different needs that we have, and trying to develop a keener sense of priorities, which I think we lack. And we tend to uh, gravitate to the areas that we're most interested in without a broader perspective as what the community needs more and what could be afforded to be put on a second tier. In your mind, since you mentioned that, what are the most pressing priorities that you believe should be at the forefront and uh, maybe why aren't they? Are you, are you speaking about the Orthodox community? You're talking about world, the world? What, what, what community are you talking about? I'm a generalist, so <laughs> whichever one you want. My focus at the OU, which is consuming most of my time these days, is the Orthodox community. And uh, what we're focusing on is a number of areas, but most prominently, the connection that we have to our spiritual lives and the danger of making our religious experience a much more cultural and social experience than it is a religious and spiritual experience, which I fear over time could diminish our and particularly the next generation's commitment and involvement, because it's, it's not meaningful on a substantive basis, tends to dilute and eventually evaporate. So that's what we're spending a lot of our focus on. Um, we're doing a lot of outreach, which is our concern for the rest of the Jewish community that's not observant, and make sure they're connected in different levels. I mean, we have a program called JSU, which is not intending to attract Jews to observance, but rather to their Judaism their connection to Judaism, and then we have other programs that are much more geared towards religious observance and increasing people's opportunity to decide whether they want to become observant based on knowledge rather than you know, just seeing what choices there are, but being able to make an educated decision on how they want to live their lives. When you talk about enriching people's spiritual worlds, what can a large umbrella institutional organization do in that regard? So we, what we're doing now, which is an interesting experiment, I, I hope it works, I don't know, but we just introduced it. But what we did was we're hiring seven people to cover North America and learn everything that's going on in the Jewish community and their respective parts of the country and see what works. Because most of the creativity and most of the effectiveness is done on a local basis, not on a national basis. The problem that we have is that things that are done incredibly brilliantly and effectively on a local basis, no one ever hears about. And therefore, we're not able to scale them. And what I'm trying to do now is create a system by which we're able to identify the genius that's out there and be able to see what could be scaled. So I agree with you. I mean, how do you do it on a national level? You clearly can't. It's, it's people and it's relationships, and that can only be done locally. But that being said, I guess the question I would have, or maybe a pushback, is to what extent do you believe that this local creative genius or this successes? are a function of the personalities that originate them or manage them, and how scalable is ultimately local talent? Yeah, that's what we'll find out. Ask me in two, three years. That's, that's <laughs> exactly the question. I, and I'm pretty confident that we'll find many programs and, and, and endeavors that are personality-driven, but there's tons of stuff that, in my experience, are not. And that's what we have to identify. Clearly, the... the expertise that we're going to have to bring to bear is identifying which falls within which category. 
Interesting. Can you just tell us a little bit about, since you are in this the helm of the OU, you know, I think people might be surprised to know what the OU actually is. People, I think, mostly identify it, of course, with kosher food. And um, the OU, I believe, is the largest certifier of, of kosher products in the world. And that side of the ledger, so to speak, is a massively profitable venture that, as far as I understand, helps fund much of the nonprofit work that goes on. Can you describe kind of the two faces of this organization, the interplay between the two, and really what the mandate is on the nonprofit or programmatic side? I know that's a lot, but try to give us an overview uh, if you can. Well, you're you're correct that certainly the familiarity that the community has with EOU is primarily the kosher symbol. Um, But that's because what we did was a number of years ago, aside from a strategic perspective, that the programs that we run, by and large, not exclusively, but by and large, are run under different labels. So, for example, you're correct that Kashras does produce profits, and profits is a, a strange word to use because they're not really profits in a classical sense as much as opportunities to give back to the community, which we think is the way kosher supervision should be run. No one has a personal interest in it. It's all money that's going to be generated for the benefit of the community. So, for example, the largest funding of the OU is NCSY. NCSY is our high school program, which is about two-thirds outreach and one-third within the Orthodox community. And last year, for example, we had 24,000 kids in NCSY programs. It's a program that's been around since the 19, early 60s, and very, very successful, and it's gone through different reiterations as society changes and the needs change of the community. So that's a people know NCSY. Many, many people don't know that NCSY is the OU, but I'm the president of the NCSY. Major decisions that have to be taken at NCSY I'm involved in as well. Uh, as you know, more than most, there, another program is JLIC, which people know. There, they, they, the decision was made to call it OU-JLIC, which is an aberration, and that's our college program, uh, which is um, an on-campus religious identity and connection program. We have another program called Yachad that many people don't know is part of the OU. Yachad is for developmentally disabled young adults and teenagers. And um, once again, that's a national program that is uh, very much invested in by the OU. And then we have other, we have a publishing house and we have uh, synagogue programs and and, and a whole myriad. And and the area that we've been investing in perhaps most significantly on an accelerated basis is our advocacy area. And the, the primary focus of the advocacy area, not exclusively at all, but the primary focus has been trying to elevate the amount of government funding for tuition. Parochial school tuition. Um, Because when you asked earlier about the significant challenges facing the Orthodox community, clearly one of them, if not the most on a practical basis, is the cost of living as an Orthodox Jew in America. And one of the core expenses that's a differentiation for a regular middle class family in the Orthodox community as opposed to the rest of society is the enormous cost of educating our children, which we find to be an absolute necessity to send them to Jewish schools. And we need to find a way to alleviate that pressure on most families. So we're spending a lot of money, and we've been, thank God, pretty successful in leveraging our investment to significant degrees to try to help and hopefully get to the point where tuition is significantly reduced. It may take many years to get there, but we're looking to God to determine our degree of success and, and timing. If you find me nodding vociferously, it's because I just received my tuition bill uh, in, by email yesterday. <laughs> so, uh, 
maybe you could maybe you could expedite the process just a little bit. Uh, that'd be great. So, is there any integration between the program side and the kosher side? Are you involved in the kosher side at all, or is that really just kind of its own independent business, so to speak, for lack of a better term? Um, and you're really focused on the community activism piece. I'm very much involved in the kosher side. The difference, I guess, is on the kosher side, probably 90% of the decisions are halacha, Jewish law and nature, rather than policy, business, um, priorities. It's what's the law? It's this item, and that I'm not involved in. And you already told us earlier you don't like the law, so. <laughs> I'm not a halachicist. I'm not, as I, I also mentioned earlier, you no know, one want me to talk to the Shiloh, so very clearly not invited, nor should I be into that realm, which is the dominant part of the day-to-day decisions, but certainly when it comes to overall policy, it is under my domain as a official president of the organization. Kashrus is one of the areas. There's a, a lay board in Kashrus that I select and appoint with a lay chairman of, of Kashrus who's involved on a daily basis in all areas of, of the Kashrus operations. And you know, I, I think that a lot of the areas of the OU really fit within the same general principle of what OU Kashrus is, which is to make it as accessible as possible to be an observant Jew in America. And if you wouldn't have the OU and its product lines and its accelerated availability of Kashrus, it'd be very hard to be an Orthodox Jew in America today. You know, it used to be in the 1950s, 40s, and certainly earlier than that, those products were simple products. And you could pick it up and look at it and figure out whether it's kosher or not. Today, products are so sophisticated and complex with ingredients that come from around the world that unless you have a very sophisticated kosher agency like the OU, which probably has, and some people uh, have opined that we probably have the most extensive computer systems of ingredients of anyone in the world. And we have supervision and sources of information all across the world, in India and China and Vietnam, because stuff is coming from everywhere that goes into products that are on your shelf in the local supermarket. Just in closing, what would you say are some of the unexplored frontiers. You've mentioned some of the aspirational things that the the organization is doing, the projects that you're in the process of. Are there any projects that have not yet been initiated that you feel are critically important, whether they would fall under the OU's purview or maybe something completely outside that, that just a personal passion or something that you care about that you would love to tackle at some point in the future? Well, I'll, I'll identify two, and both of them are on the agenda to get to, and we're starting to scratch the surface. But to me, they're both fascinating and incredibly important. The first one is prayer. Prayer is a very important part of Judaism. We pray three times a day. It's a dominant part of our social experience on Saturdays to go to synagogue. And most people's prayer experience is pretty livid and, and unexciting and uninspiring. And it's just, it's not going to work. And no one I'm finding is spending enough time figuring out how to connect the contemporary Jew to these prayer experience. And I'm hoping to be able to put together the right people and the right time frame and do that in a serious way and try to come up with a a reorientation of our prayer experience to make it meaningful. Do you think that's a failing of philosophical knowledge or just of the the freneticism of our daily lives? What's what's changed about that, if if anything has changed? First of all, I don't know anything has changed. It may have been like this for hundreds of years. (laughs) But what has changed is that we are much more sophisticated and we're much more um, distracted. And, we'll, and there are different people. I'll give, I'll give you an example. There's a, a very, very interesting uh, rabbi in Israel. His name is Rabbi Zinger. Uh, he's the Rosh Hashim of Yeshua called Mekorah Chaim in the Gush. And um, fascinating man, very special man. 
His theory is that the reason that we have a difficulty with prayer, and particularly men have a difficulty with prayer, is because what prayer is, is a conversation with God asking to satisfy our needs. And we don't know how to talk to anybody. We don't talk to other men. We don't talk to other people about our needs. We create a bravado that I have no needs. I'm taking care of everything myself, and I certainly don't know how to communicate with other people on the level that I'm ostensibly trying to communicate with God. So his theory is we have to train people how to talk and discuss and, and ask and, and, and uh, become vulnerable. I say perhaps, perhaps Brene Brown could solve the, uh, the, the prayer crisis. <laughs> so, you know, that, so he started groups in Israel that are, are doing that. And I don't know how long that's been in place. We're now exploring whether it's working or whether we should try to replicate it and see if it would work for Americans. But we'll see. I don't know. You know if I knew the, how it would be remedied, it wouldn't be a project that needs to be grappled with. Let me share with you another project um, that we're just starting now to, to focus on. I wrote an article about it in the OU's magazine, Jewish Action, about six months ago. And that's another, you know, there, there are a lot of things that have to be dealt with, not because people are negligent and not dealing with them, but realities change. And as realities change, if you don't start looking at the accommodations to those realities that need to be um, implemented, you're failing. One of the interesting realities that is changing really over the last decade, maybe two, is the longevity of our population. And when I was a kid, you know, back in the, in the 60s, the normative expectation was you retired when you're 65 and you die when you're 73. So you basically retire to die. That's not the case anymore. You know, there's no guarantee of long life, but the data would show that a person who retires between 65 and 70 could have 15, 20, 25 years of good health. That's a whole nother segment of adult life. And what are we doing with that? Well, Orthodox Jews, we believe the focus of our lives should be our religious growth. Now, when we're younger and we're busy developing our careers and, and supporting our families and spending time bringing up children, there's a lot of things in religious orientation that we just don't have the time for. But how are we reorienting the second stage of adult life to make that an opportune time to now go back to the basics of Judaism? And no one has really grappled that with that on a serious basis. I'm trying to uh, start the conversation. There is a couple of projects in different parts of the country that are starting to orient themselves to it, but it's going to be a fascinating to watch. Do you have any uh, favored prescription in that regard? Well, I, I, I have a theory. I don't have a prescription because prescription means, you know, it works. Um, I think the first thing, and we're trying to do that in a couple of locations now, is to identify the type of learning Torah that is appropriate and engaging for people who have not spent the last 30, 40 years learning. And how do you make Torah accessible and engaging for those with, maybe they originally had backgrounds that were appropriate, but they've been atrophied. Atrophied, yeah. Right? And that, that's one. And, and the second, which maybe is even easier to engage in, that people retire, have life experience. They may have a field of expertise, or they may just have the wisdom of decades of adult life. How could we capture that and use it for, to benefit the community? How could people take what they have developed and not give back? and do chesed, do kind things, and help people in need using their particular expertise, which I think would change your life experience as a retiree. Those are the kinds of things that we'd like to explore. Wow, beautiful. Really kind of a circle of meaning where they can take everything that they've gained over their own lives and find meaning for themselves by sharing it with the next generation. It sounds like very much consonant with, with what the OU is doing broadly through all these incredible programs that are collecting the best wisdom and the best opportunities out there and sharing them with the broader community. And you at the helm as the generalist in that regard, 
uh, really perpetuating that mission. So thank you so much for that activism. And thank you so much for sharing your story and your time with us. Moshe Bain. Thanks for listening. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.